welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith. And this week, a special extended episode. We're coming live from the British Library in London, whose food season has been tantalising food fans for a whole month in May of talks inspired by the cookbooks, recipes and culinary stories in the British Library collection. Speakers have included Jessica Harris, Angela Hartner, Ainsley Harriet, Dan Saladino, Alice Waters and my panel of experts exploring 13th century Moorish cookery through an absolutely extraordinary story. Come and sit with the sold-out audience as Polly Russell, curator of the food season, introduces Sam and Sam Clark of Morrow to the stage with Arabic scholar Nawal Nazrella and British Library curator of Arabic manuscripts, Bink Hallam. This is like a sort of dream come true, this event for me, it, and I hope for all of you as well. It is such an exciting subject and venture, bringing together an amazing treasure that was discovered at the British Library, the most phenomenal translation by a scholar, Nahual, then bringing that amazing text into conversation with Sam and Sam Clark, who I'm sure you all know are the fantastic restaurateur owners of Morrow. So this is just the most brilliant kind of bringing together of worlds. Um, I'm just going to very quickly introduce um, Jilly Smith, who is doing our, uh, the job of chairing. Jilly is a fantastic voice in food. She's one of the, she's the earliest adopter of podcasting and food. Some of you may know her from the Delicious podcast, which she did for four years, and now she has the most wonderful podcast called Cooking the Books, which explores cookery books in the most kind of vibrant and exciting ways with the people who wrote them. And so she is absolutely the perfect person to be chairing this session. Over to you, Jilly. Thank you very much, Polly. For those of you who don't know about Cooking the Books, it does take a deep dive into the thinking behind the food books with the authors. So this is a really exciting way of exploring a book that you're not really very likely to pick up at Waterstones. It is 800 pages long. It is a vast, vast book. 474 recipes, Noel, is that yes, right? Yeah. But, uh, but it is the, today we're talking about the story behind the book. It is literally treasure. I'm accompanied by this wonderful panel to help me tell this story. Um, Let's just talk about uh, Bink Hallam, the curator for Arabic scientific manuscripts at the British Library and welcome fellow in medical humanities at the University of Warwick. Uh, It's his interest in alchemy, uh, medicines and poisons and elixirs rather than food uh, that led to the discovery, and we'll find out why. We were talking a little bit earlier about about how different alchemy is to food. I'm constantly talking about alchemy in, in cooking the books because it is taking one thing and taking another thing and turning it into something quite magical. So uh, we're in good company today. Uh, Noel Nasrallah is much more than a translator of the book, it has to be said. Uh, the book, I had to, a wonderful opportunity to spend two hours, just two hours, absorbing myself in it at the British Library last week, and it was really quite extraordinary. I'm told that it is the nearest to the original voice as possible, uh, to, uh, considering we're talking about a 13th century male writer who wasn't even a scholar. Um, Noelle specialises in the history and culture of Arabic food. She's best known for her cookbook featuring Iraqi cuisine, Delights from the Garden of Eden 2003, which contains more than 400 recipes again and won the Gourmand World Cookbook Award. Most of you will know Sam and Sam Clark. They are arguably the chefs who introduced Moorish cooking to Britain back in 1997, when Britain was just waking up to great food, do discuss, uh, from around the world. 
They'd worked together at London's first proper gastro pub, the Eagle, handily placed next to the Guardian and the Observer, which is, I'm sure, why so many people spread the word, uh, before joining Ruth Rogers and Rose Gray at the River Cafe, one of the most influential restaurants in London's food scene, and which, arguably, was one of the creators of modern British cuisine. From there, they set up their own restaurant, Morrow, which celebrates the flavours of the southern Mediterranean. The book that we are talking about is called Best of Delectable Foods and Dishes from Al-Andalus and Al-Maghrib, and is the English translation of the 13th century cookbook. Now, I'm going to ask Noel to to, do this. We did practice it. I am so not saying this. Noel, what's the, the proper title? The proper title in Arabic is Fi Talat al Khiwan, Fi Tayyibat al Ta'am wal Alwan. There you go. So. Uh, <laughs> it's written initially by the Andalusi scholar Ibn Razin al Tajibi. Ibn Razin, yeah. Ibn Razin al Tajibi. Al Tajibi. Tajibi. Yeah. So we're going to be referring to him as al Tajibi throughout. Um, and she's written a wonderful introduction and glossary. Um, now, let us just talk a little bit about the book, but we are going to be talking about why it matters. As a journalist, you always ask that question, so what? What's the relevance for now? We've got wonderful Sam and Sam Clark to really bring it up to date and give it some context for now. It was written by an extraordinary young man, wasn't it, who wrote the recipes and therefore the lifestyle of the day. So we're through this book, we are seeing into a time gone by. We are time travelling, ladies and gentlemen. And then we are going to bring it right into your hands with these lovely food boxes by Sam and Sam Clark. Now, we're not going to eat these. And we're not touching these until we say so. Okay, and there's a reason for that. So you may look, but you may not touch Bink and Noel, we're going to start with you. Let's hear this extraordinary story of the treasure. So, Bink, let's start with you. You were, what, sitting in a room over there in the British Library? Paint us a picture. I'm the uh, curator for Arabic scientific manuscripts here. I work on a digitization project where we're um, selecting Arabic texts in manuscript on all sorts of sciences, um, mechanics, astronomy, astrology, Geometry, you know, all sorts of things, chemistry, um, and and looking through them, cataloging them again, uh, digitizing them, making them freely available on the internet. And um, one of the manuscripts that I'd chosen to catalog was uh, quite a large manuscript. And according to the earlier, early twentieth century catalogs. This is just um, an anonymous work on uh, pharmacopoeia. So it should have lots of recipes in it about how to make drugs, drug compounds for medicinal drugs. Um, And as I started looking through it, I realized there's something wrong here. It's not just one text to begin with. There are lots of different texts on different subjects. And there were some pages missing, and it was really difficult to see where one thing began and the next, you know, one thing finished and the next began. but one thing I could tell for certain is there's a big chunk in the middle, about 200 pages or so, that didn't seem to be about medicine at all. It was recipes, but food recipes, and no real reference to illness or, or anything like that. Um, and that kind of excited me, but also scared me a bit, because this is not my background. The terminology got very weird. I didn't know what the words meant. Um, and it was only... So, so that, that got catalogued. I said, you know, an anonymous cookbook. I didn't really know anything about it. Um, it went on the internet. And then a, a few months later, I was at a conference um, about the history of 
pharmacy and chemistry, and I bumped into a colleague who was interested in these drug recipes, and I told her about this manuscript. And, uh, and I said, oh, and by the way, there's this huge cookbook right in the middle. And she said, oh, you have to tell Nawal. And I said, oh, who's, who's Nawal? And she gave me <laughs> Nawal's email address. And I, I'm sorry, I didn't know the, I don't know the, the culinary material. It's not my background. So, um, so then I looked her up and I said, wow, all these other things, all the cookbooks she's translated and her fantastic website with all her recipes. Um, and I sent her an email yeah. and it seems that it was perfect timing. Wow. Because <laughs> meanwhile, yeah. I, was, uh, I was in my office at home and I was in the middle of translating this same cookbook. Ah. But I was, uh, you know, before the discovery of this uh, book, uh, we had only two manuscripts. And unfortunately, both of them were incomplete in varying ways. But because I saw that the book is so important, it's coming from uh, Andalusia, um, I said that, okay, then let me, I'm, I'm going to translate it. But then I, I wasn't feeling comfortable about this because my conclusions in the recipe, I mean, in the, in the introduction, wouldn't really be complete. It would, be, it would just be speculations, you know, because I don't know. What what one I mean? What other uh, recipes are are missing? But I resigned myself to this, and uh, uh, I was in the in the middle of translating the uh, chapter on uh, on fish dishes, and that was um, you know before the just a little bit before I um, uh, approach the the missing part. So uh, in January t- uh, 2019. Like perhaps the second week of January 2019, an email just, uh, I, mean, I, I received an email. It says, I have discovered, I mean, he, of course, he greeted me and he said, I have discovered uh, 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 a text that I think would interest you. And he uh, told me about it and he didn't know what, uh, I mean, what it was, I mean, uh, um, so, and he said now it is available, you know, at uh, Qatar, uh, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, Qatar Digital the, Library. Yeah, Digital Library, and he gave me the link. So, because Bink had digitized it by that he time. He digitized, yeah, yeah, it was digitized. So I went there, and uh, I looked at the first page. I said, well, this, this, this text looks familiar to me. <laughs> what are the chances? Yeah. I mean, this is quite right. extraordinary. So I turn, I mean, turning, of course, that's metaphorical. I don't turn it. I mean, I turn the page, turn two pages, three pages. Well, that's the text that is up to Jimmy's text. I kept on, you know. And then I came to the missing parts. And there is the missing part. All the recipes. It's, I, I mean, it's all there in front of me. What, what was the feeling, Noel? Oh, you cannot imagine. I was really thrilled, you know. I, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so that's the that's And, the, and Bink story. didn't really. They, I mean, it wasn't the same feeling for you, was it? You kind of knew kind of because you'd found out who to send it to to make that connection. When Naval told you what you had uncovered... Well, there's another story there. It's not as exciting as the rest of the story. The story there is that I never received the email that she sent back. I've only heard now about the email. Now that we've met, uh, two days ago... Oh, my God! I said, no, I, I never actually got any... But I got a subsequent email a while later that referred back to the first Well, when email. you first heard about this, this connection, this amazing synchronicity, I, I, when I'm I first literally heard about the only person it, in the when world. when I saw that. No way. It's when I saw that and I thought, oh my goodness. And then, so subsequently I found out that she wrote back, 
you know, thanking me profusely and, and saying, oh my goodness, I know who, who wrote this book and, and filling in all the missing details that I had. That is extraordinary. Uh, but I had to wait. I had to wait a really long time. You know, I, immediately, I, immediately, I immediately emailed him and thanked him profusely. So I told him perhaps it went to spam. He said no. <laughs> who knows? What We're here we now. have <laughs> is the only telling of 13th century Andalusian food by a very young man. He, he wasn't young at the time, too young. Well, when he, he wrote it, it was when later. He but, it, he was perhaps he was in but when 30s. he was observing the life in Andalusia yes, that he was writing, I mean, he left he when was, he was yeah. 20. I yes, mean, yes. every element of this is really extraordinary, yes, yes. isn't it? And so what we have is the ability to really step back 800 years to look at a time through its food. And, of course, when you're talking about food, you're talking about customs, you're talking about rituals, you're talking about the way that people eat together, what they ate, you know, what was the food from the land, it tells us an enormous about okay. a food, a, 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 a ex- extraordinary amount of information about food. How much did we know about that? Maybe, um, well, well, that's your, your kind of question, isn't it? Well, uh, you know, we, 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 have, later. <laughs> <laughs> we have only two books that came to us uh, from uh, uh, southern Spain when it was under the Muslim, uh, Muslim rule. So Al-Tujibis and an anonymous one. And both of them more or less deal with, the, you know, similar recipes. So, uh, but this one is more, uh, uh, more elaborate. It is more inclusive. And uh, it is, more, I mean, um, it's, a, a, it's a complete uh, cookbook, very well organized. And you can easily go through it. And uh, the chapters are, uh, he, he, he methodoc- methodically de- divides his book into parts, 12 parts. Each part is divided into chapters. And he proceeds so logically from one ingredient to the other um, until he gets to the hand washing uh, uh, preparations. So um, it's easy to see, to have a, 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 an idea of what was available at the time, uh, how they were cooked, and uh, some regional differences, some ethnic differences. You know, you get a glimpse of uh, life at the time, society. Um, agriculture, I mean, you get, uh, I think, everything you need to know about the material culture concerning this, uh, this field, when, I mean, you can rely did, on it. Yeah, totally. And let's think about the mind of the man. When you're translating, you have to assume his voice, don't you? And uh, what do you, how did you see this man? Who was he to you? Well, uh, there are two things. I mean, we know something about him, fortunately. This is unusual in, uh, when you deal with cookbooks because cookbook writers, I mean, cookbook writers, sometimes they just put their names on the book. Uh, sometimes they don't put their names altogether on the books because they think it's, well, it's just a cookbook. I mean, it's not, um, it's not an important text. Um, we have only book, two books that have, uh, we have, I mean, definitely have names on them. That is Ibn Sayyar al-Warraq, the 10th century uh, cookbook. But in the case of uh, Ibn Sayyar al-Warraq, we only know his name. Nothing, nothing about him. But this one, it so happens that we know, you know, something about this guy. Um, from uh, a brief biography, we know that he grew up in Murcia, which is uh, uh, in uh, southeast uh, uh, Spain. Um, it was a prosperous uh, uh, city, and uh, but at the time when he grew up, of course, 
um, you know, uh, Muslim Arabs were uh, losing uh, their, you know, grounds for uh, to uh, the Christian monarchy. But he lived uh, a good life. We know this. Uh, because they say he belonged to an uh, intellectual family um, and they were uh, so respected and revered by, by all. So we are sure that he lived uh, a life, uh, I mean, a, a good life, and he enjoyed uh, the best of delectable foods and dishes that he, that he talks about uh, here. A lot of other people write about him. I love this idea that, you know, he, he didn't, he wrote the book, obviously, but he didn't write about himself. Uh, other people wrote about him. I have an idea of him as okay, a so sort of somebody who, who was a host, who had a lot of salons, had lots of, lots of learned people, and, and he cooked. I mean, we don't know that he cooked, but you do say that he, he writes about, uh, he writes the recipes with the sensit- sensibility of a cook. Correct. Yeah, that's quite true. He goes through the kind of uh, the methods as a cook yes, would. Yes. That's unusual for the time. Yeah, I mean that's un- I mean it's usually recipes. Uh, if you read them in medieval cookbooks, they will be either you know they are brief, or they'll be you know uh, put this, put that, and then you know like simple things of stews or something. But with this one, we have, you know, sometimes two pages dealing with one recipe. For example, uh, uh, a stuffed chicken or stuffed uh, uh, squabs. And he tells you how elaborately you can prepare this dish. You, uh, you know, you clean the bird, you uh, stuff the cavity, not only that, but you have to loosen the skin between the... Uh, the, the 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 bones and the you know and the and the I mean they loosen the skin and separate it from the meat and the same for the same uh, stuffing you stuff it between the skin and then you tie it very well and put it in boiling water this this recipe happens to be boiled so you you put it in in a large uh, pot in boiling water and he said make sure to have a needle hold, hold the needle when you are watching it while boiling. And as you notice that the skin starts to, uh, you know, to, to form a bulb, you pierce it. Otherwise, it will, you know, the whole skin will, uh, yeah, you know, will open up, like it burst. Yeah. yeah. Only somebody who knows how to cook. Exactly. Can, can yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Sam, did, and did, did you pick this up when you were reading through it, the recipes? Did you see, did you smell the, the chef in him? <laughs> well, the, yeah, the, the main thing is that it was the, the enthusiasm comes across. Yes. Yeah, which is fantastic. So it's not, you know, we're all talking to a degree about, you know, academia helped to, to let this book yeah. come into the light. Yeah. But actually now we've got it in the light, it's a very human, it's just like some foodie overexcitedly. It is overexcited, yeah. isn't it? Sort of talking. Yeah. I, lo- I love the, she- the cheese pastry. I was making, I, I don't know how you pronounce the the. the, the Polish-Ukrainian term, knicza, I suppose. You know, these lovely little cheese-based pastries where... Oh, mujabbana. Yeah. What are they called? Mujabbana. Mujabbana. That's that's the Arabic version. You get them all over the world. I was using the the Eastern European versions. But he he talks about picking each edge and bringing it forward, doesn't he? And it's a very visceral way of... Of, of writing. I mean, are you a cook yourself, Noir, as you assumed the voice of al Tajubi? Did you become the chef? Um, well, you know, I, I mean, I can see him preparing the dishes. For example, is the, the same uh, mujabbana 
this same Mujabbana pastry, he describes the basic one, which is a fried. You know, they are, they are formed like small balls uh, stuffed with, uh, with cheese. So he says you hold the, um, the, the dough, you, you flatten it, you stuff it, and then you, hold, you, you put it in your hand and you squeeze it. And then something, I mean, it, it will come out, you know, like this, you cut it. And then you flatten it with the back of your hand because you, we know when we cook these things how messy our hands become. Yeah. So he, he uses the back of his hand to flatten it, <laughs> make a hole in it, and then fry it. Yeah. I mean, all those details, yeah, I find them really fascinating. And <clears throat> it shows really that the, uh, the value of this book, that, uh, you know, the practical uh, value of this book, I mean, you can easily uh, cook so many of the recipes following his. Uh, accurate uh, instructions. Yeah, absolutely. And he's writing for cooks, isn't he? No, no, not necessarily. Well, he, he's writing for people who love food. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought cooks, not professional cooks. No, but, but cooks he's in general. But, yeah. Well, yeah. professional cooks, yeah. I'd call chefs. I mean, yes. he's writing for people who love to cook. He, yes, yes. And he's, he's sort of, it's a bit of a Julia Child about him. Yes, you know, yeah. sort of, you know, he wishes you well at the end of a recipe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, he doesn't actually say yeah. bon appetit because he every recipe, really, you know, every but, recipe, he says, uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, and eat the, di the dish celebrously. You know, this is... Salubrously. Yeah. is a great word. It's so charming. Eat it in good health. I, this is this is a generous <laughs> spirit of a good cook, you know, of a... There's this great spirit about yes. it, and there's a lightness about it as well. I mean, you know, for the denseness of the... Or the excitement, let's call it, the excitement, the, ima the imagination that he draws in, uh, it, it, there is a, a, a lightness of touch, I, I think. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by him. Um, he was writing about Andalusian life in the 13th century. He actually wrote the book after he moved away from uh, Andalusia as Arabs and Jews, uh, well, Ar they had to, they, they had to flee. Can you tell us a little bit about the background of that? This is a man who's writing about food as part of his whole lifestyle and his identity. Tell us a little bit about what was happening uh, in 13th century Andalusia. Yeah, well, as I said, he uh, lived until the, he was 20 years old in Murcia, uh, and then, of course, uh, the things deteriorated. It was not possible for them to stay in Murcia uh, after the treaties was uh, breached, you know, because as uh, they stayed for several years as uh, mudejers, which was called mudejanun in Arabic, and, you know, they were allowed to uh, practice their uh, Muslim uh, uh, rituals. But then this uh, treaties was breached. They had to leave. They went to uh, Suta first. They stayed uh, several years, and then they went uh, to uh, uh, Bijaya, and then several years, and then he settled in Tunis uh, for the rest of his life. And of course, the Muslims and Jews kept on fleeing and fleeing all those years, and I think that, um, you know, he felt that this uh, beautiful cuisine, this, these beautiful dishes he grew up on, uh, they might, uh, you know, disappear with the, you know, with the fleeing of those people. So uh, he did it, I think, for uh, as a, you know, as a nostalgic gesture, you know. And he did it also for his country yes. that he uh, yearned for, you know. So uh, and so he wrote it, and he, it's like a labor of love. <coughs> he wasn't commissioned; nobody asked him to write it. And we know that he wrote it for himself and for his countrymen who are, uh, uh, you know, who are losing a life that they cherished and now 
so the least he, I think he felt he could do was to preserve it in this form. He was a man, he was a literary man. Uh, he was well revered. I mean, but it's ironic that of all the things that he wrote, he wrote on uh, history, on literature, and all other things. But of all the works that survived to the to to uh, I mean to the present is this cookbook. So this tells you you know something about the importance of. Well, absolutely. I yeah. mean, you know, as I was reading it, I was thinking of Claudia Rodin actually, who's in our audience today. Um, we are honoured. Uh, you know, Claudia, your work was so important in gathering the recipes of the diaspora as they fled from Egypt, from the Middle East. And, you know, this is what this man was doing, wasn't he? He yes, was yes. very aware that his, his culinary heritage was being yes, yes. taken away. I mean, you know, Arabs and Jews were being forced to, yes. to eat Christian food, yes, yes. to eat pork. Um, as part of the sort of the breaking down of morale that always happens with conquest. Um, but it was the writing down. It was a, it's a moment, I think, of, of real rebellion. I, I love this man. I have to say I really yeah. like this guy. Yeah, yeah. He's got real spirit, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he does. But he, he wasn't a scribe. Uh, being a scribe was a, a, a profession. Uh, he wasn't... A, he, t- tell us a little bit about, about the scribes of the time, whose job it was to write down the history of the, of the moment. Uh, well, he was a, a scholar. So he was interested in uh, hadith, you know, religious hadith, and he, he used to... He had his students, he had his followers, and he followed others. He wrote on, uh, you know, he, he, he wrote some, uh, you know, he wrote on poetry, on literature. He was a... a, a, a you know, uh, he, his, his interests were diverse. He wasn't only interested in the religious texts, for example. Yeah. So... Um, so, so it's natural that cooking, you know, writing about cookbooks should be uh, part of his interest. And what interests me even more is that he was advan- in advance of his time for uh, considering cookbooks as eligible for, uh, you know, uh, for being uh, like, you know, we call today bedside reading. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he realized that uh, reading a cookbook is not... I mean, it's not necessary that you, uh, you, you cook the dishes from the book, <laughs> but reading them is a really a major source of uh, uh, entertainment because he says this himself. I mean, I do, uh, at the end of one, of one of his chapters, it's a very long chapter. So he said, I think I have mentioned enough of this dish, uh, and uh, even though you don't end up cooking those dishes, but there is a, you know, there's a, there, are, there are wonderful sources, I mean, you can learn so much from them, you can, they are entertaining sources uh, and, he, and he said, I can say this for the rest of the chapters so I think, I mean, he's the, he's the first one, uh, I mean who said these things I'm, that I know of, I don't know anybody who said this before our modern times that yeah. cookbooks well, exactly. yeah. can be read yeah. for pleasure mm-hmm. yeah, I mean Sam and Sam, let's bring you in on that. You know, you write prolifically. Uh, you know, cookbooks are absolutely a part of our modern life. You know, we don't just like to do recipes. We really want to hear the stories behind that. You know, when you see a book like this that was really undervalued, I mean, it wasn't seen at the time as something that could give that insight into, into lifestyle, into stories of the people. I mean, how do you see the work that you do in comparison? 
<laughs> I mean, it's a different world, isn't it? Well, I mean, I, I suppose every, you know, every book is of its time, and um, and so we we only write recipes of things that interest us and intrigue us and that we want to do, and um, so. Our, our recipes, many of them, we were gathered from travelling, and, um, and 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 then and of course there was a big crossover with, with you know um, so I mean he 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 was documenting the, the dishes which gave him pleasure and influenced him and meant something to him and to a degree we're just doing the same. Yeah. Can- can we talk a little bit about your fantastic trip? So, right, you know, in the spirit of Altajubi, I know you didn't know who he was at the time, but, you know, the two of you took a camper van mm. down through the same area, down through Andalusia, mm. uh, gathering stories, you know, picking up pretty... It must have been pretty much the same kind of food because it hasn't changed very much, has it? No. And then into Tangier. Sam, do tell. Yes. Well... I mean, just to give, us, uh, give you a little bit of history about Mora, I mean, as you said earlier, you know, we'd worked at the River Cafe and when we came to start thinking about opening our own restaurant, we didn't want to, um, you know, just do an inferior River Cafe and we, we hadn't travelled much to Spain and Sam was really interested in the Islamic world and had sort of several trips to Pakistan when he was young and so we thought and also we thought well Spanish food on its own is wonderful but we also loved the um, Middle Eastern side of food cooking you know the lighter herbs and vegetables and salads and spices so just by marrying the two it was obvious it was the Moorish world that we had to, uh, you know, was our um, inspiration. And therefore, you know, we, we, as you say, took a camper van and drove all around Spain and Morocco, you know, armed with, you know, Claudia's book and Paul Welfort's book. And we were literally going around trying to find, having read certain recipes in the book and trying to see them being made so we could understand and bring them back to London. Yes, and that is what you did, didn't you? You took the time to really go mm-hmm. deep and it's not just how food is made but the context. Yeah, to feel it, feel it inside. So when we're back in the kitchen, you know, we shut our eyes and we imagine we're back in the soup somewhere. You know, because we really want to recreate those dishes and make them as real as they possibly can be. Did you have a sense at the time that Britain would be interested in it or was it your absolute passion that that just led to the restaurant because it 1997 you opened morrow i mean this wasn't a great time in british food it was beginning no. it was beginning but i mean most you know most restaurants were pretty rubbish at that time weren't there there was a kind of you know what happened at the eagle and obviously at the river cafe was changing everything and it was opening people up to the idea of stories again ruth and and rose at the, at the river cafe were telling stories about the tiny little villages in italy that each one of them cook things in a different way food had life to it Mm. Um, I know that it was a very influential time for you at the the River Cafe in particular Mm. Um, is that what you were trying to do what was the the intention of the trip we just knew what type of food we wanted to cook but we didn't we weren't thinking about anyone else we were just really focused on that and trying 
to cook as authentically as we possibly could be with with the sense of history uh, in each dish. So we were very focused, weren't we? I mean, we were just... Uh, I, sp- I suppose also we like... Because of the Hubbard camper van, the idea was... It didn't totally work out like that. The idea was is that you could go to the market and you could buy the ingredients which gave another layer of authenticity to the food. So, you know, we might, um, you know, have a green almond um, and use that which you couldn't get in other places. We might use the, the, the sheep have this huge fat on their tail and we might, you know, buy the fat from the tail. Every now and then we might sort of... <clears throat> you know, see if we could buy some camel and things like that, you know, so it was just sort of, just trying to have experiences and to be able to buy ingredients and shop and just learn as much as anything as, anything as the, from the ingredients as well Yeah, um, and bring things back, we bought back lots of mahama, the wind-dried tuna that you couldn't get I mean, in 1997 it was really difficult, I mean Pomegranate was not an everyday <laughs> word. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, Dossalenghi was only 2010, wasn't it? I mean, you know, it feels like we've been eating this food forever. I remember reading something in The Guardian about, I think, 2007, which, you know, said the mazé, which was which, uh, from Morrow, was the next big thing. I mean, you know, it's extraordinary that it's, it, it's so much part of our culture now. Mm. It felt like we were all like baby birds, desperate to be fed something interesting. But it was story. And if you look at the most most interesting restaurants I don't know if everybody agrees with me on this one but for me the most interesting restaurants and certainly the most interesting cookbooks are those that are about story and people and and identity Mm. Um, 25 years on at Morrow are you still finding new things to say through your food I know there are a lot of things that are still on the menu but I mean are you still finding new things yeah I mean Sam you know proudly reminded the chefs last week that here we are this is a new menu that we're cooking and at least two-thirds of the dishes we change our menu every three weeks and at least two-thirds of the dishes that we cook are brand new like we haven't cooked before so you know we we love discovering new things and that's what stimulates us and keeps us going and and when we're stimulated our chefs are learning too so but um so, you know, this book is a huge wealth of inspiration. I mean, and yeah. it's and I, mean, I haven't even begun really to do it justice. But um, so we're very lucky because I have to say, in 25 years, the countries we visited have changed so much. People aren't doing things in the old ways as much. So unless you're very lucky and you can go to people's houses, or you can. You know, you can't go to the streets of Tangier and watch people, um, you know, eat the pastries from the street vendors. You, so we were lucky that we we had that experience. But also now we have a window yeah. into doing things the old ways and keeping that, um, you know, yeah. alive. Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that you know we are talking about real authenticity here. We are talking about the food from that particular time. And we're talking about a time in British history, British food history, when people were so desperate for those stories from around the world. We'd all started travelling a lot as well and coming back with, with food that we'd tasted. That We wanted more of it and we wanted them in, in our cities. Now, we would be talking about cultural appropriation. We've been through the fusion stage. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't like that, food, that word very much, do we? Mm-hmm. 
How do you feel about, you know, do you use the word inspired by or do you, I mean, how do you feel about the, the cultural appropriation argument where who's, whose job is it to, to tell those stories through food? Well, I like the word she said, marriage of... Uh, of I, I noticed the carefulness so this of This is, word. I think, the, <laughs> the best way to describe it. Yeah? Mm. I mean, food's always been evolving, you know, yes. hasn't it? Yeah. So it's just marriage or it's just an um, evolving, every, you know, all, all creative pursuits, if you can call it that, evolve with every generation. Yeah. Well, we're going to ping those two ideas back together with these four food moments. Now, in your boxes, well, Sam and Sam, why don't you explain what you've done here? When you open your boxes, it should be a, a, a symphony of beige. It's not... They're just meant to be evocative. Little tastes of things which really sum up the flavour profile of some of the dishes. I had to do them that they could be transported, that they could be done in advanced sort of practical things. But um, They are taken from the book. They're absolutely taken from the book. They are based on the recipes in the book. You are eating 800-year-old recipes uh, yeah. by Sam and Sam Clark from Morrow. They're that not, is a pretty special not moment. They're the sell-by date. Don't be put <laughs> off. No, the green... Oh, yeah. Yeah. The so, green omelette so you see is taken from those pages. Um, it is called Espiria. It is... Everybody see. Oh, I, I, I cheated. The Espiria is a very flat... Uh, 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 omelette, and it, it, you look at it. I mean, you, you notice it is green because juices of uh, mint and uh, cilantro are mixed with the with the eggs. So they are made very fl- flat because the according to the recipe, you need to roll them. You know, like the way you roll a a, a piece of paper. You know, and then. This roll is uh, cut into slices, and these slices would be fried. And once again, when you read this recipe, you notice how, uh, you know, the style of uh, Al-Tujibi, how exact he is, how, uh, uh, you know, meticulously uh, uh, describing his, uh, I mean, meticulously described his instructions. For example, he says, uh, don't make them thick, because then you, it won't be easy for you to roll them, which is true. I mean, they will break. And he said, when you fry them, don't crowd the, the, the skillet with those pieces. <laughs> if you find they are crowded, take some out and then continue cooking. <laughs> I mean, all, those, all those details. Yeah, and what did you do with some Sam? Sam? Did, you, did you change them? I well, mean, obviously you, you, you know, I mean, we've been making tortillas tomorrow, but... Then, and we were sort of, you know, you'd have your chop your potatoes and you'd have your onion, and, and it was very sort of Western sort of potatoes and onion, and it was sort of, um, and then suddenly to have this omelette, tortilla, but al Andalus omelette with these layers of flavour. Um, and also, you know, this and is delicacy the delicacy of the texture. Yeah, this is the first time in this recipe 
as Noel says, you, you squeeze the herbs, so you, you whiz them yeah. and you squeeze them so you get the juice out and it's the juice that goes into the egg, not like we would That's instinctively pulp, yeah. do, which would just be chopping the herbs. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So again, you know, we've learned something from that. Yeah. And it's that, more that, delicate. That theme comes across in quite a few of the recipes where oh, you don't use the, the recipes, yeah. You don't you don't use the herbs in it, you, you squeeze yeah, you you get the use, liquid yeah. which you know um, allows the subtlety of texture yeah. not to be interfered with. In, yeah, it in, happens yeah. in so many recipes. I mean, when I tried the recipes, there are 22, I think, modernized ones. I remember I, 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 I prepared juice, so much juice for, from cilantro and mint, and it's not difficult to... I mean, it's not easy to extract juices from those yes. herbs. So I had to improvise and add, you know, help it with some water so that at least it yields some of the... Yeah. I don't know how they did it, you know, with all the pounding and the, and the mortars, but with, even with the food processor, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. So we've also got the sprouted broad bean. I just finally want to say about the oh, omelette. Yep, come. It's um, okay. a new thing which uh, I didn't... The book has so much vinegar, um, and I didn't really associate... Um, it had so much vinegar. You, oh, yes, the, yeah. So the, the the eating suggestion <clears throat> with this what is that you make your omelet and then you reduce some vinegar and you drizzle the vinegar on it. And again, in all my years of making vinegar tortilla, sauce, yeah, yeah. and that sort of to me transforms it. You just get that little bit of freshness and piquancy, and um, that's such a clever thing, which. Um, which, again, has been lost in the 800 years. I've never heard that before. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Claudia <laughs> um, had something to say about it. We're going to go to questions in about five minutes. promise we've got 40, about 45 minutes for questions and answers. I'm sure you're all desperate to ask questions. And we will do it, but I just want to go through. So through, let's just go through them. They are the sprouted broad bean, the lentils, the paper-thin omelette, and the hawal, the, the, the nougat. Uh, sprouted broad beans, Sam and Sam, you, do you ever sprouted a broad bean before? Well, <laughs> no. I, I've known about the sprouting pulses from getting more nutritional value out yep. of um, uh, beans. I've, I've heard about that before, but, but not... Um, but we neither of us realised how sort of common... And even nowadays... For example, in sure. Egypt, yeah. <laughs> sprouted board beans uh, that you just don't eat the skin and you just pop the inside into your mouth is, is still very common. So, it's called full nabet. Wow. And, and um, so that, you know... And actually, when we had dinner the other day at Morrow, you told us, no, no, you don't eat the skin, you don't eat the skin. It's, yeah, so again, we learned about that. Whatever you do, don't eat the skin. <laughs> I hope no one's at the skin. He was, he was Hands up if you've eaten the skin. Oh, no. You're going to train your waiters to go around going, no, it's not how they did it 800 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So, so, we, so first of all, we were told... Um, so I spent hours looking for um, uh, small broad beans. So I said, we don't want these big, tough, leathery things. And then I was said, no, 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 for this dish, it's very important. You have the big, brute Brute of broad beans, and then, um, but you just squeeze. Oh. <laughs> um, you just um, <laughs> you just squeeze out the centre, and then you yeah. eat them. And they're yeah. a very traditional. 
I mean, during the dinner, he was uh, talking about this. What do, I mean, there, there's, what is this leathery texture or something? I said, what leathery texture? <laughs> I mean, I took it for granted that people don't eat the outer skin. I didn't know. I mean, we, we, we practice it in We've Iran. Yeah, it, just, in the, in the recipe, it doesn't yeah, say so. It assumes yeah. that... No fool would eat the outside. <laughs> no fools like the Brits, eh? No fool would eat the fool, yes. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> the Syrian lentils have been on your menu right from the beginning. Yes. Um, of course, they are absolutely a part of, you know, Middle Eastern food for, gosh, well, Claudia will tell us as well, I'm sure, you know, forever. Um, what have you done with these ones that are any different from yours? Well, um, the recipes really... Again, the layering of spices, um, the the use of saffron, um, which we've personally never put in lentils, um, and and um, and then the um, the vinegar. Yeah. Yeah. So we've never put vinegar in our lentils. We've never put saffron in our lentils, and this suddenly had this layers of flavour, which. Interesting. Now, the, the nougat is... We would use make nougat with a digital thermometer, obviously not around 800 years ago. Um, Nawal, can you explain how he would have made nougat? You, what does, what does it's it all about? by experience. They don't need any, you know, any gadgets to measure. Uh, and they go by, for example, in other recipes, in other books, he would say... Um, if you take a, a drop of the sugar, you know, of the of the honey or the boiling sugar, and put it in cold water, uh, you will see that it is, is sol- it becomes solid and it easily breaks. So this is you know, it is done. So yeah, so yeah they go by uh, you know by practice. They know these yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. Are you too well practiced enough to know how to not use a digital thermometer? No, <laughs> do not. But it's the ancient terms, isn't it? The um, hard. Boiled and, and soft. Yes. Or the, yeah. Yes, yeah. 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 Um, let's just finish before we go to questions from the audience. Um, what did you, t- Bink, you, Mr. Poison Medicine Alchemy Man? Yeah. Um, what do you know now that you didn't before, other than well done for looking very closely indeed, <laughs> and thank God for email. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, I know now. That, I mean, I guess it just highlighted for me that when you open these really, you know, very early books, these, these old manuscripts, first of all, each one is going to be completely different. So we have many copies of the same texts in different manuscripts, but each one's completely unique, handwritten, different owners, different marginal, um, you know, things written in the margins, doodles, all sorts of things like that. And you just never know what's going to be between, between the covers. The other thing that, I, that it reminded me of and really drove home is never trust the catalogues, never trust... <laughs> Never trust librarians. Never trust the curators. I always hated they don't know what's in there. Look for yourself, and you don't know what you're going to find. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well done, and thank you for finding it. Yeah. Now, well, what, did, what will you take into the rest of your life from from Al to Juby? I think um, we should take cooking seriously. I mean, it's really uh, an art. Um, it's uh, you know, um, it's an important thing. And if he found it like 13th century, in the 13th century he found it really that significant. So we might just as well, you know, you know, value what we, the, the the knowledge we have. We have to preserve it and we have to enjoy it and entertain others with it. Absolutely, Sam. What would you take from the book? 
Whereas, for example, in China, they use uh, soybeans. Mm. Uh, the, the Romans, for example, they use fish in order to make uh, those sauces. Uh, I think these are important. From ancient times, they found that those sauces are important because they have uh, the umami taste in them. Mm. And, and, and they didn't know how to describe it, mm. but mm. they insisted on using it with whatever ingredients they have mm. in order to, uh, to achieve this... Uh, you know, uh, kind of complex text in mm. our dishes. Nowadays, we use the tomatoes. We don't need uh, uh, I, the morri. I think also, I mean, it's always been very apparent that, 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 that there's such knowledge about food as medicine as well. And now we all know that fermented things are really good for you. And so a lot of the pickles which are done were always fermented pickles. Yes. They weren't, we think of pickles as you get your onions and pour vinegar on them, which is a sort of, in a way, a dead pickle. Mm. Yes, but really, uh, most of the when things are referred to as pickles, they're fermented, and we all know that fermented things, you know, incredibly important. And that was even before they had antibiotics to fight. You yeah, know, to have absolutely. to replace your gut. So, what would you do at Morrow with your fermented juice? What will you? <laughs> well, um, we. I mean, we have fermented juice in the kitchen all the time because we make sourdough bread. Yeah. So there's always an element yeah. of we have it, but this is taken a bit further and this is um, allowed to get more sour but, um, and more complex yes, yeah. probably. Mm-hmm. So it will just be experimenting. But, it, but anything which needs... Which are the main recipes? Which I mean, a lot of recipes have it in the a world. Lot a lot, a lot, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we're, we're going to we're going to go back to it. Yeah. This is one yeah. of yeah. the main recipes. Lovely. But I mean, I, I have a question. Did, didn't you wonder why you are having vegetarian dishes? I mean, <laughs> Middle Eastern the, the cuisine is famous for its meat dishes. That is, they chose it. Besides, it's uh, it, you know, it doesn't have meat. It can stay longer uh, fresh. But uh, I think Bing can, uh, he's specialized in those uh, texts, you know, medical texts, well, and he can I say mean, something. Not really, it's, it's just, um, you know, the, the, in, in the British Library manuscript, the, this, this cookbook is sandwiched between all these medical texts, some yeah. of which are about um, the different food ingredients that go into yeah. recipes like these, um, and talk about them from a nutritional point of view. And... Um, Certainly the vegetables were thought to be very much, um, you know, light on the stomach, aiding digestion, but also bringing all sorts of healthful qualities and were particularly recommended uh, for ill people yeah. or to, to keep from getting ill. And, and that tradition goes on um, very late in the Arabic-speaking yeah. world, doesn't it? I mean, I'm looking at another manuscript recently from the 19th century, uh, from, uh, from 19th century Syria at, at a time when... Um, there was an epidemic going on. I can't remember what it was now. Cholera, I think. And, um, and the, the, the doctors there were recommending vegetarian diet to begin with. Yeah. Absolutely, vegetarian yeah. diet. Yeah. yeah, but then the, those dishes, you know, the, that were prescribed by physicians, uh, you know, they came, they were already there. 
uh, they were cooked by Christians, you know, for uh, their uh, Lent, you know, Lent yeah. fasting. Yeah. So it started with the religion, and the doctors saw that those dishes without meat, you know, meatless dishes were quite useful, yeah, I mean, quite uh, healthy for... And, and uh, still goes on right across well, yeah. Greece, yeah, so, right the way through the Eastern Mediterranean. So what they did yeah. is what they called them muzawarat, mm. which is counterfeit dishes. Ah. Counterfeit because you are cheating the, the sick people. Oh, you are not well. giving them meat, <laughs> but you, you are giving them the semblance of meat. So, muzawarat. Ah. So, you are eating fake, fake, fake food. food. Fake food. <laughs> Sam Samantha. Yes. Um, what's the thing that you have taken from the book that you will oh. take in tomorrow or your life? I mean, I think for art, for me, it's just the privilege of, you know, reading through and seeing these ancient recipes and and I feel very privileged to be able to make the recipes and to be serving it to our customers for yeah. other people to enjoy that you know might have been lost so it's for me really quite extraordinary very special so we had the, we had the the, the thin omelette on the menu um uh, last week and um it's changed now the menu but with, with some white asparagus in the middle so we blanched the white asparagus and then we um and then we heated it up by grilling it on the barbecue. And then we sort of made a sort of parcel with the thin omelette with the white asparagus in the centre. And so we've, you know, viewed And then the it. vinegar, the produced vinegar yeah, on top. Yeah, amazing. Thank you so much. Um, let's go to the audience. Um, Polly is going to come around with some, uh, some microphones. The lady with her hand up um, about ten minutes ago, she yes. definitely is going first. Um, <laughs> what surprised... Was there anything that surprised you or amazed you about the, the, the dishes or the foods? OK, I'm, I'm really impressed by the uh, complexity of the dishes, some of the dishes, um, especially the, the, stuffed, uh, the stuffed birds. They are so elaborate. The recipes are so long. It takes me such a long time to uh, translate all those excruciating, you know, steps of, you know, one step from the other with all the variations on, on it. If you don't like this, then you can cook it like this or cook it like that. Yeah. So uh, the com- it, it, it strikes me with the, the complexity of the dishes, you know, some of the dishes. Yeah. I mean, uh, this is unprecedented. And, they, and they, find what it. I find pretty amazing is that they were they were specifying um, not just cinnamon, but they would say cinnamon from Ceylon. Yeah. You know, it's amazing in that day and age they are already discerning. Oh, they're not just happy to get any cinnamon. No, 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 cinnamon. They wanted cinnamon <laughs> yeah. from Ceylon. And, and that's really interesting, actually, because this was a time of massive sort of spice trade, yes. wasn't it? Yes, it was. You know, there was a lot of influences, a lot of travellers from all over the world heading yes, yeah. all around this area, and they were being influenced themselves. I'm, I mean, just a very quick question. When did those the, the, the recipes sort of land, particularly in Andalusia, for example, and maybe Al Tajibi talks about this, when did the influence from all the travelling, well, the Moors, um, settle to create a stable Moorish culture? Yeah, well, it started, you know, if you read, if, I mean, uh, from uh, the cookbook we have from the 10th century from Baghdad, we know that it goes back to the 9th, 10th century during the golden times of the Abbasid period when travel uh, was really active, you know, uh, you know, trade was so uh, to and fro uh, India, China, and all the way to the, you know, through the land lines, I mean, land uh, uh, routes, 
yeah. uh, the Silk Road and the uh, you know uh, the the Sea Routes yeah. through the Indian Amazing. mass cross pollination of ideas. Absolutely. The Mediterranean, the yeah. Sea Routes yeah. through, yes. through um, the Red Sea down so it, it, Indian Ocean yeah. and the land route to China yeah. all became part of one yeah, political can, religious organization. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, everybody it, loving food. That's what I love about <laughs> it. Gentlemen no here in the front. Can we just wait a minute for the, for the microphone? Thank you very much. If, if we go back to the question of vegetarian food, I grew up in Egypt, and if you were sick as a child, there were two things that you'd be given, which is vegetable soup, which obviously to, to rest your tummy and everything, you know, it's sort of like no contamination, and the other one is the full nabit soup, mm. which is the, the beans that we just had. Uh, but it was actually made in a soup, so you have the, the beans as well as the soup, and that would actually cure you. Mm-hmm. That's so that's interesting. Was, I mean, yeah, so we was, might uh, know it now as stimulating the gut, wouldn't we? Yeah, so yeah. That, was, yeah. that was like one of them would give you all you need, the other one would give you the protein, which is the mm. food. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, anyway, I just wanted to add Thank that. You. That's really interesting. Um, somebody at the back. <clears throat> a quick question on is there a, an ingredient? in the book that you found that does not exist anymore at all and you would not be able to source? Well, yeah, there is one uh, ingredient that really puzzled me, uh, which is, doesn't occur with the... No, I mean, most of the ingredients, we do have them nowadays, especially the ones that deal with food, you know, just daily foods. But in the chapter where you have the hand-washing uh, uh, preparations, there is one uh, ingredient that really puzzled me. It was called bunk. Um, you mix it with other ingredients, aromatics, and then you wash your hands with them. It removes the uh, grease from your hands after eating. Uh, after doing so much research, I got to the conclusion that uh, either it was derived from uh, uh, you know, the acacia trees or from uh, uh, coffee beans, either it was, you know, bun, bunk. Uh, I was encouraged by uh, the book by Ockers, all about coffee, because he says that bunk, he called it bunkum, was, uh, um, you know, was uh, mentioned by Ibn Sina, by Arrazi, that is back to the 9th century. I went to their books, and sure enough, there was bunkum. They don't say what it is. It is a known. It is a <laughs> so he says that uh, it. I mean, it refers to uh, to coffee beans, uh, particularly coffee husks, because when coffee bean started to be used, they didn't use the bean. They didn't use the bean themselves. They used the the husks. That is up until the 14th Ooh. century or so. So um, I said that you know uh, this ingredient might be uh, uh, coffee husks or coffee beans crushed and mixed with other... After, of course, I mean, what really uh, convinced me is that every time they mention bonk, they said it has to be toasted. And we know coffee beans are nothing. They, they don't smell of anything without toasting. Mm. So this is also another thing that confirms my, uh, my identification of the, uh, of the, of the uh, ingredient. Uh, in my book, I have a whole. Uh, I have an appendix. You know, I dedicated a whole, like an article on the, on this. Um, uh, I uh, there's an analogy of tea. I mean, we all know that tea is a is a. You know, w- we started using tea from the 19th century or so. Uh, 
But in fact, the Arabs knew tea uh, right from the 9th century. Um, it was called shah. Um, it wasn't used as a drink. Uh, it was used as a medicinal ingredient. And he, they, they said, uh, the, the pharmacist said, that it was uh, brought uh, from China. It's, uh, that's why uh, it was called shah, like from China, you know, shahsini. Uh, it was uh, brought and it was used as a cure for headaches and, you, you know, uh, other uh, uh, light uh, ailments. So I say if, if shah was, if, if tea was from the 9th century, well, then why wasn't, uh, why weren't those, you know, coffee beans uh, used in order uh, to wash our hands? I tried crushing coffee beans, coffee husks. And uh, I chopped some garlic and then rubbed my hands with the, uh, with the coffee beans. And, uh, the, 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 you know, oh. the odor was gone. Oh. <laughs> with the husks as well, just the husks. No, the with the, uh, yeah, with the husk, with even the husk, with the husk. Just yeah. the husk. Really. They, they have the same properties, the husk and the, and the, and the beans. And, and, and nowadays we have shampoos with, the, with coffee yeah, we with do. beans. We have, you know, we so... Do. Yeah, you can. Put, thank you. Yeah, you can put <laughs> coffee grounds in your uh, in your refrigerator to absorb the yeah. the. Uh, Who's got another yeah, question? Okay, thank you. Yep. Based on the the ingredients that you just described and the complexity of the um, um, recipes overall, is there anything that you can infer about the type of people that would be using these recipes or the occasions? Like, was this for feasts? For every day, for the poorer people, for richer people. Yeah, well, you know, as with cookbooks, you know, uh, you know, people who are, uh, you know, uh, who don't have the means, they don't use cookbooks in order to uh, cook their dishes. I mean, but uh, cookbooks are written for the well-to-do, you know, for those who have the means, um, especially with those dishes that have. Uh, uh, an abundance. I mean, they, 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 you have to use uh, lots of uh, spices, lots of ingredients. Um, so you need some money in order to cook those But al Tajibi wasn't writing for anyone other than himself at that time. He describes the food that he ate, and he was uh, a man he of he high was, standing. Yes, and so he describes a world where people were eating some pretty lovely food, weren't they? They had access, <laughs> let's say. Yeah. The elite. Yeah. The elite, yeah. Elitist, yes, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yes. M- microphone behind you here. Yes, can you tell us what sort of vinegar we should use to uh, supplement these dishes? Verjuice or the cherry vinegar would have been an option. Wine juice, mostly. Yes, sherry sherry vinegar. Yes, well, wine juice. um, Yes, yes, okay. Not balsamic. Uh, No, no. Just regular. uh, I mean, from the recipes. Good quality uh, red wine vinegar, but a good quality one. Yes. Yeah, there's a chapter. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a chapter for making vinegars, mm. and it was made uh, from uh, figs, uh, white uh, uh, grapes, uh, red grapes. Mm. So uh, it was all wine, I mean, grape based. Thank you. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Whereas in Iraq, for example, it would have been date based, oh, yes. because that is where date, you know, the dates are. Uh, you know, the, it, uh, I mean, the, the, where they, do you, where they grow do you have to make alcohol before you make a vinegar? No, not necessarily. The, the, the recipes, uh, uh, they, I mean, we have in the book 
directly from grapes. It's just fermented juices. Yes. With yeah. the mother, with the mother culture. Yeah, yeah with yeah. the mother culture. But you know, um, they talk about using, I mean, wine vinegar, which I mean, they say it's it's halal, it's permissible because when you convert wine into vinegar, it loses all those uh, yeah. uh, unpermissible, you know, yeah. you know yeah. those uh, forbidden, uh, yeah. s- uh, this forbidden stuff. Okay. Lovely. Thank you. Janice, when and how did the manuscript enter the British Library? Yeah. Um, so we were looking at that the other day, yeah. yesterday. Just yes, yesterday. yeah. Was it 1925? No, I can't remember. Yes, yeah. 1920. So it was sold uh, by a gentleman named David Fetto, um, who I know very little about. I've tracked him down through the wonders of the internet and found his high school yearbook. <laughs> it was, he was... Um, living in Baghdad. Um, he was a, a, a Jewish resident of Baghdad. His father owned um, a pharmacy. Um, and I know very little about him. But his name appears every now and again on the last page of, of manuscripts in the British Library where they recorded who, who they bought it from. So he had obviously, at some point, either became a, a manuscript dealer or came to the UK with a, a trunk full of manuscripts. Where he got it from, I'm not sure. But it was clearly produced in, in, um, in northwest, northwest Africa and then had moved all the way across, uh, all the way east out to Baghdad and then all the way back to London. Wow. Interesting. Wow. It's, it's had a bit of a journey itself. Yeah, wow. wonderful. Who can tell that story? I don't suppose anyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice question. Thank you. Who else has got a question for us? Thank you. Uh, do you know how long it took to actually write the book? Uh, how long it took to write the book? Oh, we don't know when he wrote it exactly. Uh, we don't have this information. If you ask me how long it took me to tell you. <laughs> That's another story. <laughs> but he was, he was 66 when he died. Yes. He was yeah. 20 when he moved to Tunisia. He could, be, he could have been in his 30s, yeah. early 40s, but I don't know. But I, I assume it uh, should have taken him a long time. Yeah, and especially with, with a lot of uh, cross-references. I mean, as I told you, the book is divided into uh, parter, parts, parts into chapters. When he talks about beef, the beef chapter, and he repeats the same recipe in the chicken, for example, like sikbaj, he would say, you cook this, the, the chicken the same way you cooked it in chapter one and, 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 and part two. I mean, such a, such a memory. I mean, for me, I use the, uh, you know, of course, you know, I search the, the file. You know, it's so easy. Yeah. But for him, I think it, was, it must have been really, uh, mm, you know, mm. he must have really... Well, that's, is there evidence that he was working from, like, a card file or something? Because you have some of the medical texts that were written first as notes, so you could imagine it like, like a file cabinet where someone would write notes of, you know, drugs right. that would work well for one thing and for another thing. And then they could, it allowed them then to rearrange at a later date, once they've got a lot of, of recipes, they could rearrange them into categories and that sort of thing. Did they so, use this in medieval times? Definitely. Arazi's, yeah. for example, oh, his uh, Kitab al-Hawi yeah. was made that way. It was actually put together, it was, it was his notes um, arranged sort of loose leaf and, and um, so he could rearrange them. Yeah. And he, he never published it as a book himself, but his students then put it together. Oh, uh, so I don't know if there, there's... Yeah, well, perhaps he was a scholar and he, he knew about these things. He must have, mm. yeah. But yeah. he is, I mean, they also, scholars used to have good memories. I mean, they were... Uh, 
That's well, that's often, right, that, my, yeah, yeah. My dumb recipes yeah. that they want to remember. Yeah. Like, the ones that work well and are good. Yeah. But that kind of visceral way that he was writing about it, you know, he really inhabited those recipes, didn't he? And so yes. maybe that sort of yes, memory yeah, kind yeah, of helps yeah, as well. Yeah. You do tend to remember things like that. Um, any more questions? Yes, the one next to you there. Oh, right, lovely. Sorry, where? Hand up again. Elizabeth. One minute, Elizabeth. Did you, now I'll have a, a hand in choosing the illustrations, in which case, where do you find them? I choose them all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was the one to choose them. Yeah, where did you yes. find them? Oh, you know, in the, the museums, it's, it's, we are so lucky these days that they are digitizing them and that, that they are in the public domain. I mean, it's like a, a gift, you know, from the museums. I used to pay a lot of money for, you know, for the, for the copies of manuscripts, for a, for a permission to use an image. But now it's all free, and uh, the, the images, you know, they are in so high definition that you can, you know, choose details from them in very, very excellent quality. Wow. I'm, I'm really grateful for this. Mm. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. We've, we've run out of time. Um, I'd just like to say that I can imagine this entire panel, Sam and Sam Clark, Noel Nasrallah, Bink Hallam, and Claudia Roden and Al Tajubi at my fantasy dinner party. Can anybody imagine a better... <laughs> way of sending us an evening um, thank you very much to the British Library and to Polly Russell um, who I think is going to jump on stage and uh, say something lovely I am. I'm just very quickly <laughs> going to say a huge thank you of course to you Julie for your really just very very elegant and lovely steering of this conversation I hope you all get some sort of sense of this extraordinary man that we've been talking about in this amazing text and I feel like his generosity and his enthusiasm. We're sort of channeling Al Tajibi here with these people. And I want to just do a, a sort of chronological thanks. I want to thank Bing Hallam for being a brilliant curator and for finding the manuscript. Yes. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. The, the very best of the British Library here. Um, he says don't trust the library or curators but you can trust Pink Hallam <laughs> so I'd want to thank don't take our word for it yeah. <laughs> I want to thank I definitely want to thank Sam and Sam for entering into this project with such enthusiasm and such curiosity and for so generously sort of pulling together these beautiful samples and for just being conscious and thoughtful and wonderful chefs who have changed the way that we think about food I want to thank Brill, who've published this extraordinary book that is just completely beautiful, packed with not just his words and text, but all the contextual. They just have not scrimped. This is a real, just a most beautiful text. And it is, of course, a labour of love. We owe huge, huge thanks to Nahual, who dedicated years and years of scholarship and thought to producing this beautiful text and many others. So to Nahual, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Please do get in touch on social media. I'm at Cooking the Books with Jilly Smith on Instagram, where you can also follow my adventures in 21st century cooking with Leafs Online. And you can check the show notes and on Instagram for full details of how to get a Cooking the Books discount on Leafs cookery courses. And I'll see you next week when we're with a winner of the Great Cookbook Challenge, Dominique Wolfe. Bye.